Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. What's up, XPRIZE fans? Sophie Hernandez-Tapia here, your host on the Future Positive Podcast. If you're new to the show, welcome! In each episode, you'll hear from top scientists, creators, entrepreneurs, innovators, and changemakers who are paving the way for innovation on this planet that we call home. For today's episode, we're tuning in to a powerful conversation hosted by Dr. Shalomi Katan, Chief Advancement Officer here at XPRIZE, as he interviews workforce development expert Dr. Angela Jackson and anti-racist educator Karen Fleshman about how people in power can be agents of change for people of color. Shalomi, Angela, and Karen discuss power skills, the importance of anti-racism at work, breaking down the meritocracy myth, and why believing in a better future of work is an act of radical optimism. So let's listen in. Hey everybody, and welcome to this very special Labor Day episode of the XPRIZE Future Positive Podcast. Today we are discussing the issues of labor, race, and equity. I'm your host, Shlomi Katan, Chief Advancement Officer at XPRIZE Foundation. And to have a real understanding of these subjects and the importance of tackling them, I'm joined today by two brilliant guests. First, Dr. Angela Jackson is a partner at New Profit, where she leads the Future of Work Initiative which seeks to close the career readiness gap for workers from disinvested communities. She is currently leading a $12 million Future of Work global initiative to invest in entrepreneurs and companies developing innovative technical solutions to upskill workers for the jobs of the future. Alongside Angela, we have Karen Fleshman, founder of Racy Conversations. Karen is a mentor, activist, entrepreneur, attorney, author, educator, proud San Franciscan, and a single soccer mom. In 2014, she founded Racy Conversations, a workplace workshop facilitation company to inspire the anti-racist generation. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Shlomi. Uh, Starting things off, Angela, uh, maybe you could introduce yourself to our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Angela Jackson, I'm a partner at New Profit, a Boston-based venture philanthropy firm where I lead the future of work investments. And in my role, I lead New Profit's Future Work Initiative, which seeks to close the career readiness gap for Americans from low-income backgrounds. Um, As part of that work, I've had the privilege of working on the intersection of race and equity and thinking about how we have an equitable recovery in the future of work post-COVID. And today I'm I'm working from actually Waukegan, Illinois, which is approximately about 15 minutes from Kenosha, Wisconsin, where a lot of the racial unrest are, are happening. And so, and in the Midwest. So this kind of topic of work is very present for me today. Thank you for that, Angela. And Karen, if you could introduce yourself as well. Sure. I'm Karen Fleshman. I'm the founder of Racy Conversations. We're a workplace workshop facilitation company. I founded in 2014 to inspire the anti-racist generation. The early part of my career was in the immigrants' rights movement. And I was working for the city of New York 
when reports came out that said 50% of Black men in New York City don't have a job, and we have almost 200,000 young adult New Yorkers not in school, not working. This predates the 2008 economic downturn. And coming from the immigrants' rights movement, it was like, what? Like, how is that even possible? And why isn't this front page news? Why, why doesn't everybody drop everything and address this? I really wanted to address it. So I spent 10 years in workforce development, preparing young adults of color for careers in tech. And through that work, I became the mentor to hundreds of young adults. I thought the solution was internships, connections to employers, all of that. But as I listened to what these young adults were experiencing, I realized I had to confront my own racism and also went to the workplace. They were being bombarded with racism. Their own managers were telling them things like, you know, we just hired you because you're Black. And we had spent so much time preparing these young people uh, to go to these workplaces, but we'd done nothing on the other side to prepare the people in the workplace for these young people. And that was that moment when I realized I thought I was helping young people, but I'm actually putting them in harm's way. And I need to focus on the workplace. I think there's many people like me well-intentioned white people who grow up in almost entirely white communities. And we don't learn how to relate across differences equals because we live in segregation. Then we move to cities like San Francisco, New York, Austin to pursue the limitless career opportunities available to us there, but we don't have any experience um, relating across differences equals. And that is what Racing Conversations is designed to help us learn how to do. Thank you, Karen. Angela, I wanted to turn to you. You actually started your career in the private sector and you took what you learned in that work to improve career outcomes for students as well. Can you tell us more about what motivated you to make that career change? Yeah, I think, you know, my story really started before then. You know, I was raised by my grandparents and my grandfather worked at a local Chrysler factory and he was able to provide for our family doing that work and and had a lot of dignity in his work. And fast forward, you know, I was able to go to college and on to grad school. Um, that, you know, supposed American dream is just not a reality anymore when we think about it. Um, there are people who work two and three jobs and are still not able to provide for their families. Um, we have unprecedented student loan debt um, that students are coming out with, and that really impacts their futures and you know, our overall country's economy. So when I was in the private sector, you know, I began thinking about students and what skills they would need for the future so that they could have their own American dream and have economic security. Um, so I started this organization, Global Language Project, that partnered with New York City schools to create world language and culture programs. And really the spirit behind that was to give children a fluency in a language, which is a, a skill that's highly coveted in the workforce world. And, and so we wanted kids to be able to 
see that opportunities were much bigger than the neighborhoods they lived in in New York City. And eventually this project spread across New York and then out of the state and throughout the country. Um, but it was always a workforce play. It was thinking about how do you take children who may come from disinvested communities and expose them to careers so that they know the options that are available in the work world, the options that are available in the future of work. And how do you do that so it's something that they grow up with? And I, I always tell a story about kids who come from wealthier families who are sitting at the dinner table and, you know, they may have, you know, a dad who's a doctor or a mom who's a nurse, and then they grow up and they are in that same profession. It's because it's been modeled for them. And what I wanted to create in my program is a way to begin modeling for kids who may not have parents in these occupations what the world of work could look like. And I just really appreciate um, what Karen had mentioned about the way that Gen X was really grew up professionally. You know, I will say that part of Gen X didn't understand intersectionality, but part of it did, right? Because the United States has always had intersectionality. It's just at a point now that we're understanding that that is one, an advantage when you think about it, and especially with the changing demographics. And two, just making sure that we're understanding and we're building work environments, right, that embrace and uplift that. And so that's what we're really hoping to do with the work that we're doing and the work that I'm leading. And to center the voices who are most proximate to think about their experiences and how do we make that become the dominant narrative versus another narrative that only shows like one slice of a viewpoint of a worker that's homogeneous experience, which is not the way the United States is. I appreciate that. Angela, in talking about your experience growing up, you alluded to some of the challenges that the workforce faces today. And I think most central around those is the lack of upward mobility opportunities for people who work what used to be described as blue collar jobs. I wanted to hear from you as you're looking at the work that you're doing today, what from your perspective are some of the biggest challenges that you're trying to solve in the workforce development space? There's a couple of them. So when you we talk about blue collar workers, there's a narrative that they don't have skills. Um, if you think about, you know, the vast majority of people who don't have a four-year degree, um, they've been out there working and they have skills. So there's an organization opportunity at work that put out a report and it said that, you know, 71 million Americans out there may not have a four-year degree, but they have the available skills and expertise and work experience to have higher skilled jobs and higher wage jobs. But because in the workforce right now, we don't have a way of validating those skills or certifying them, we use a degree as a proxy. And that leaves a number of Americans, millions of them, without access to opportunities for higher mobility. And so when we talk about some of the issues in the workforce sector right now, we really need a way to validate people's worked experience and lived experience that's accepted across the country, right? Besides just a degree. The second piece of it is we need to shift this narrative about blue collar work and white collar work and, and whose work is it and, and gendered work, for example. Um, and so really pushing on like who should be a nurse, for example, who should be a teacher, like all of these norms, you know, need to go out of the window. And then when it comes to workforce and education, um, a lot of people will hear me if they look at my reading. I talk a lot about workforce boards and job centers. 
Um, these are really the backbones that are connecting people to work in many communities throughout the United States. So one in 12 Americans in 2019 went to their local job center to look for a job or look to for upskilling opportunities. When we talk about the future of work and the future technologies, it's important that we're not just thinking that you go to college for these, for this upskilling. You should be able to go to your local community job center and get the training that's based on actual regional data of what occupations are most in demand. And you should be able to get informed information about what jobs will have actual career pathways. Um, and so what I'm seeing, I think I'll just close with is just this lack of like information and access to information. It's out there. I mean, if you look at MC and if you look at Burning Glass and even LinkedIn, they can drill down to the city and let you know what jobs and what sectors are growing. Those are great points. Karen, I wanted to ask you because your work focuses not as much at the systemic level, but more at the level of individual companies and the inclusion that those companies are able to get transgenerationally. I wanted to hear from you in terms of that work that you do on a daily basis with these organizations. What are the challenges that you're seeing these companies face in their ability to accept a more inclusive workplace and a more inclusive workforce? Yeah, well, I, you know, the challenges companies face uh, in the tech sector alone is a $16 billion a year problem because women and people of color are experiencing discrimination at work and they are voting with their feet. They are simply leaving and finding another job. And that turnover, that churn is a big problem. Um, it's interesting. Almost everyone who hires me is a Black woman, and most of them are not even in the diversity, equity, inclusion team. They're, they're uh, in some other functional role, and they have been trying to explain to their colleagues the discrimination that they face at the workplace, and no one will listen to them. So they're like, Karen, you, a white woman, will you please come and explain this to my colleagues? And so what I do is I go back, you know, I teach not only the science of unconscious bias, but who created stereotypes? Why do we have such strong stereotypes about what a white man is, what a white woman is, what a black man is, what a black woman is, et cetera, et cetera. Because I think it is extremely important that we understand it's not just race, it's at the intersection of gender and race. And that these stereotypes were created 400 years ago to justify land theft, genocide, slavery, um, and to make it seem like this is the way it's supposed to be, and the subjugation of women, right? And, and 400 years later, these gendered racist stereotypes are still pervasive in our culture. We see them on TV. We see them in the catalogs that come in the mail, these pictures of white people living these lives of, of ease and splendor, you know, and, and it's extremely strong. Infants will prefer white dolls over black dolls, including black infants. That's how pervasive this messaging is. So we have to start to really uproot 
those stereotypes that are embedded in our head. And one of the things that I do is I point out how if people with different races and genders do the exact same thing in the workplace, they are perceived very differently. And the folks who we have empathy for, uh, we don't have empathy for people of color. And the darker they are, the less empathy that we have for them. So how can we break through those divides? And how can I call my company Racy Conversations because I do believe we learn the best in conversation with each other. I do think there are some, you know, white people who are very ill-intentioned and doing this intentionally. And I do think there's a lot of others of us who are doing this on an unconscious level. But whether it's unconscious or intentional, the harm is the same and we have to stop. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Angela, you mentioned workforce boards. And I think one of the important things about driving inclusion, I think we're starting to see a little bit of this, not so much in the anti-racism space, but in climate change, how investors and how the deployment of capital can actually drive more positive outcomes. And I'm wondering from your perspective, as somebody who is investing in the next generation of of workforce technologies and workforce development solutions, how you see the deployment of capital, both philanthropic and profit-driven, as a way to change the workplace and as a way to to drive for greater inclusion? One is, that's the exciting part, right, of being an investor and, you know, the good and bad about being an investor in money is that money can be a great incentive, right, for people to do certain things. So one thing that we've tried to do with the Future of Work Grand Challenge and also with just our overall investing at New Profit, one is we wanted to make clear on our stance, one around proximity. Karen was mentioning about people we live in the segregated, you know, society. It's our firm belief that you really have to get proximate with the people you want to serve if you want to come up with great solutions. So anytime that we're investing in an entrepreneur, we're asking them, what do you know about the population that you're serving? How does your lived experience match up with them? We put in actual quantas and data. So we want to know, for example, who's on your leadership team? Because we firmly believe that a diverse team makes a better decision. Research has showed that. Um, and we can say all the research and, and all the academics all we want, but we know that whatever you incentivize, when you incentivize behaviors, that's what people do. So for us, you know, letting people know that we plan to invest, you know, 40% of our dollars into leaders of color and that we're prioritizing black, indigenous, and Latinx leaders, like we're very clear on where we stand. The other piece of it is, um, when we talk about proximity, you know, we stood up a worker advisory board and we did that intentionally because we wanted the voice of workers who've been impacted by COVID, who've just been impacted and just integrated into this workforce system on the receiving end to help inform our investing decisions. So before we make an investment in an entrepreneur, we go to proximate communities and we actually have them weigh in and they help us select our investments. So it's not like we're doing it in a bubble or we're doing it on a high perch. We're actually doing it shoulder to shoulder with the people who are going to be the recipients of 
either the, the technology or the investments. And so what we're hoping to do at New Profit is, is lead by example and make transparent how we invest and also make transparent, you know, what mistakes that we make along the way. Because a lot of times people want to get into this, but they're afraid that they're going to make a mistake and that they might be called out. We're in the middle of this cancel culture. But at this point, it's we feel at New Profit, it's a moment for us to be brave and to say up front that we're going to make some mistakes, but we expect that anyone that we're investing in, that they're prioritizing proximate voices, they're prioritizing racial equity, and they're prioritizing the people who are going to be most impacted by automation. And they need to show us how this is integrated into their business model. Yes, yes. Actually, you, you mentioned that you're in Illinois today. You know, all three of us are here in the United States and we're facing the confluence of a number of events that are taking place. You mentioned yourself, the pandemic and how that's affected the workforce. You know, since March 21st, we're talking five months now, every week but one has seen more than one million new jobless claims. And to put that in perspective, the single worst week during the Great Recession of 2008 saw 665,000 new jobless claims. We are blowing those numbers out of the water every week, and they're impacting black and brown communities more than any other community. Angela, I wanted to hear from you because you mentioned this earlier at the top of the show. How do we build back better? What do we do to build back more resiliently, more robustly, more equitably, so that we don't take this crisis simply as the nadir, but rather as an opportunity to improve outcomes for millions of people around the United States and hopefully around the world as well. There's one thing I've been thinking about uh, the coronavirus and, and, and one thing I think that is good that has come out of it is that we've all been sheltered in place and we're all watching the same programs and we're all seeing the, the live realities of people on the street, right? We're, all, we're seeing the frontline workers who are going to work every day where you know a lot of people like myself included are privileged to shelter in place. And so, you know, as I was in Kenosha and touring and talking to people there, you know, what we saw as a community is when work disappears, what we see there is a very segregated community where people in the same cities are living completely different lives, right? You know, on one end, you have million dollar homes on a lake with a beautiful view. And in the other area, you have burned out empty houses. And we have to wonder, like, how do we continue to let these disparities exist? And we have to know that that's because somewhere, somewhere along the line, right, we've decided that certain people deserve to live in poverty, certain people deserve to be homeless, and other people deserve to have, you know, better housing and economic security. And so when we talk about building better, right, and, and I mean, we have to go back to seeing the humanity in all of us and the empathy, right, and knowing that if down across the railroad tracks, there's not a kid that's eating, it doesn't matter if my child has food on the table, like I need to take care of my neighbor. And so when we're building back, we really need to be thoughtful about. It's not good enough that some people have jobs. That's not going to help the entire city. It's going to be important that everyone has good jobs with living wages and benefits for us 
all to prosper. And so when we're thinking about that, you know, especially us in positions where we're hiring people, where we're investing, you know, we have an opportunity to hire differently. When we think about our social networks and how we, you know, find out about jobs, we have an opportunity, each one of us, to do it differently. The problem seems massive, but with each meeting that I take every day, I can say that I take a meeting with women today. Did I take a meeting with someone outside of my network today? When I looked at my applications, did I just look at the people from Ivy League degrees, or did I give someone from that community college a second look and a chance? And so really, you know, what I'm hoping about building better is that we have all kind of bore witness to, bear witness to what we've seen. We can each, if we each agree to do things a bit differently in terms of our day-to-day -day practices, I know that we can build better. And I'm an optimist about that. I know the future of work can be better because I know that we're creating it with the decisions we're making today. Karen, you have worked with hundreds of companies around the nation and building on what Angela said, as you're looking at how these companies are responding to this crisis and how they're changing their behaviors, what are you seeing from your conversations with leaders at those organizations? To be honest with you, I'm, I'm pretty dismayed. You know, I, I wish I could say, oh, this, they're, they're really going to make a change. But you think about it, these companies have profited from inequality, right? They drove the 2008 subprime mortgage lending that led to, uh, prior to COVID, median black net wealth was projected to be zero by 2053, median Latinx net wealth was projected to be zero by 2073. And I don't, I can't really point to any company that I'm working with that is like really taking this on, okay? Because what it would really mean to take this on is to redo every aspect of your company from who you employ, how much they're paid, who gets promoted, what your senior leadership looks like, um, you know, who your shareholders are, uh, uh, who your vendors are, um, and how you do business in the community. Racism is highly profitable. Racism and capitalism are deeply linked. There's a reason why in Kenosha, certain families are living in these lakefront homes and other families are living in dilapidated areas. And it's 400 years of intentionally created wealth accumulation policies that have allowed white people to accumulate tremendous uh, intergenerational wealth. And it's upheld through personal decisions. It's upheld, as um, Angela acknowledged, by... Um, by the daily interactions that we have. And among white people, it's upheld by opportunity hoarding. So I live here in San Francisco, you know, a majority people of color region in a majority people of color state, but nine times out of 10, if a white friend invites me to something, almost everybody there is white with a few Asian Americans. And when a black friend invites me to something, I'm one of maybe two white people who are there. And in these social occasions, we are exchanging all kinds of social capital, you know, all talking about uh, our, our kids' school and how we got them in there, uh, talking about the internship opportunities at our companies and trading these back and forth. And so we're not 
exchanging them across difference. And what this is leading to, I think, is harmful and toxic for everybody, um, including the, the children who are, quote unquote, benefiting from this, because by the time they're at the peak of their career, people of color will be the majority in our society. So I think we have to rethink everything and, and make it equitable from the very beginning. And it, it starts with the schools. Our schools are so segregated and so disparate in terms of their funding. Uh, and then get, how can we get more teachers of color and get them adequately resourced? And how can we create educational systems that develop each child to love themselves, to know their, their culture, to know their history, to appreciate and value the culture that they come from, and to be able to relate with other children. That is so important. And I'm, I'm really terrified, I'll be honest with you. I feel like we are sliding into fascism right now. When you have armed uh, white men shooting people in the street, shooting protesters, aided and abetted by law enforcement. I mean, we, we, are, we are really at the brink of losing our democracy. And a big part of this is white people being terrified of the demographic changes. You know, before COVID again, only 25% of Americans had good jobs, had jobs that paid benefits and, and allowed you to send your kids to college and to be able to have a, a, a decent place to live. And we have to, that, that's just unsustainable. We have to make sure that everybody in our society has access to good jobs, whatever place that they're living in. We need to get rid of the myth of meritocracy. Where you land in this life is a product of your own hard work alone. It is not. And I think that that has been really harmful for white people because we believe this meritocracy myth so much that when we're not successful, um, then it becomes easy to blame other people for that. Yeah. And, and Angela, you, you made a point that I think really cuts at the heart of this meritocracy myth. And it is the personal responsibility that people in power must take, whether it's people of great power or people of moderate power, the personal responsibility. It, it reminds me of, of two quotes that have always been important to me. First is uh, Albert Mimi's notion that there's no such thing as a colonialist. If you are benefiting from colonization, you are a colonizer. There's no such thing as sitting it out. And the second is MLK's famous quote of the about the appalling silence of good people. And Angela, I think one of the things that you are doing in, in your, what I'll call activist investing, right, is, is not just calling attention to the need to invest more in founders of color, but also in the need of those founders of color to have a voice that is heard by the people who normally shun them, who normally exclude them, to Karen's point, from those uh, convenings of, of power. And Angela, I think... You know, I want to understand more. New Profit is really making a big investment in entrepreneurs and companies that are developing innovative technologies and technical solutions for workforce development. 
And, and I wanted to hear from you about the opportunities that you see in that, and especially as they relate to empowering. You know, it's, you, you talked about proximity, but it's not just proximity. It's also the empowerment of those who are most affected by this. And I wanted to understand more about your work in that space and, and what you guys are seeing happening. This is one of the, the most exciting parts of the work is the empowerment, as you say, Shlomi. Um, when I talk about the worker advisory board that we're standing up, who's helping us, you know, judge the innovations we will invest in, um, on the back end, what we are doing also by bringing them in the process are making them more savvy consumers of this technology, right? And they're able, better able to use their own agency and direct their their careers and their career paths. And I love what you said about activist investing. I had never thought of it that way, but um, definitely I would agree with that. Um, it's really, really important, right, that we're centering people and we are empowering them because they're going to be the change. You know, as Karen said, we. We can wait for other people to change. Um, they may or may not, right? But the more that we can empower communities, the beneficiaries, like they're going to be the agents of their own change. And what we're trying to do is just really talk about with our platform, this idea, I love this idea, Karen, that you said of opportunity hoarding, like how that is not good for anyone, right? Because we can create all the technology we want, but if we don't have anyone who can afford to buy it, none of us will win, right? Like capitalism is not going to work if you have like the top 2% that has everything and you have everyone else who's trying to figure out how to pay their rent. So when we think about like opening up opportunities and, and really informing and educating and centering our experts and frontline workers. One is we want them to be agents of change. Two, we want them to be informed consumers. And three, really actively know how to use their voice and vote with their own dollars, right? Because they're also making decisions that impact, you know, what products that they will have access to. So we want to make sure that they're empowered in that way. Absolutely. And along those lines, what are some of the unique workforce solutions that you're seeing that get you particularly excited? What are some of the companies that you're coming across, uh, new ones, recent investments that you've made that you're thinking this right here, I'm excited about where this is going to get us? Yeah. So, and there's a couple. So one is I just, you know, a lot of things we, we talk about are technology. Um, I think technology can enable things, but it's not going to all be technology. And so I met the recent founder of an uh, organization called Daughters for Rosie. You know, she was an engineer and, you know, she looked to her left and her right and she saw that there wasn't a lot of women beside her and there certainly weren't a lot of people of color. Um, so she started a, a nonprofit arm, a social venture where she trained, you know, women and people of color for these jobs in ma manufacturing. And there were entry level jobs of their jobs with pathways that offer benefits. That's exciting to me for two reasons. One is, you know, she's a proximate entrepreneur, a woman um, who had done very well for her, herself, very successful company, but also looked to her left and the right and said, okay, who's missing, right? And what could be the path to bring them on? Is it about them getting more training? Is it a four-year degree? The gap that she really identified was, was soft skills or what we call 
overall power skills on how to interview for these um, manufacturing jobs and how to translate their their experience to that that is needed in the manufacturing sector. So really excited about their work. Another um, organization I'm excited about is Career Karma. Um, I talked earlier about the information gap and, you know, helping people make informed decisions so they have a lot of information. You know, Career Karma is out there and they're, you know, really aggregating all of the boot camps and coding boot camps that are out there. And they're saying, okay, this boot camp might be good for person X if you're looking for, you know, certain type of factors. Um, And I think that's really great because, again, when you're a person who's thinking that you might be interested in coding or a boot camp, how do you know which one is right for you? You know, if you look at all of the advertisements, they all look the same. So organizations like Career Karma, who are vetting, who are validating, who are making the comparisons easy and straightforward, that's a game changer. Because again, that's that's closing that information um, gap that we see. Yes. And I love one of the things that Career Karma has done in response to COVID-19 is aggregate laptops for people who don't have them, aggregate devices because, uh, you know, while there are so many needs out there, one of them to a lot of people who live in, as you call them, million-dollar lakeside homes seems like an obvious thing. But broadband in the home, laptops, these are things that a lot of people don't have access to in this country. This is the Future Positive podcast, right? So we're thinking about the future. And Karen, you brought up some of the things that, you know, we might not be very optimistic about, such as the wealth gap and what that's going to look like in 20 or 30 years I wanted to hear from you. What are some of the things that you're looking at 10, 20, 30 years from today that you're thinking this is what the world should look like? And where's the gap that we need to close between that vision for a more optimistic future and where we're headed? So I am a mom, so I try to remain on the optimistic side. And I think it is so important for all of us. I I just went to the... um, Black National Convention convened by uh, Movement for Black Lives. And everyone should watch that. It was beautiful. They really laid out a vision, a very positive, affirming vision of what Black people could uh, could be living like. Um, Because I think it's really easy for us to get stuck in the day-to-day and all the negativity and to not have that North Star of what we are struggling for. So I have a vision board in my office of what I am struggling for. And what it looks like is a society where women hold power and women are uh, women of color hold power and, uh, and everybody is safe. Everybody is free. Uh, It is a just society. We do not depend on the carceral state or punishment. We practice restorative practice with each other. In 1980, Audre Lorde, Black revolutionary poet, lesbian, gave a talk about why women did not get the Equal Rights Amendment. And she said, our greatest problem is that we don't know how to relate across difference as equals. And so when we try to get together and achieve social change, we wind up harming each other and we make very little progress because we all go our separate ways. And she said, if we're gonna, we have to change the material conditions in which we live 
at the same time that we change the way we relate to one another. And we have to learn how to relate across difference as equals. And I, I really agree with what Angela is saying. Those closest to the problem are closest to the solution and often furthest from the resources and, and power to, to make decisions. So we got to make sure that those folks who are closest to the problem have access to the power and resources to make decisions to self-determine what they want. And what gives me hope is, is, is Ayanna Presley and Ilian Omar and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Cori Bush and just seeing all these incredible Rashida Tlaib, um, Pramila Jayapal, seeing all these incredible women of color who have come out of com community organizing and are now getting elected and changing our laws. This is what I am struggling for and what gives me hope. Thank you. And Angela, turning to you, what are you future positive about? What I'm really excited about is Gen Z. So I have a 14-year-old stepdaughter um, who's biracial. And when I look at her friends, it's like a Benetton commercial, you know, and it's what we were talking about earlier. You know, Gen Z is like the most racially and ethnically diverse of like any of the previous generations. Um, and they're, you know, on track to be one of the most well-educated. And when I think about them and I talk to her friends, um, they view race differently. Um, they also view economics and capitalism differently. And I, I laughed to my partner. I said, I think Gen Z is going to save us. I really do. And I think the generations that will come after them. Um, when I look at the streets and I, I look who's marching, you know, when I'm in Boston, where I live outside of Boston, it's a very diverse group of young people. And I think that they are realizing that they are the beneficiaries of this of this world where a lot of adults have not made great decisions, right? And they're gonna be left to pick up the pieces in terms of the economy, in terms of the climate. And it seems to me that they wanna do things differently. And so I think as the adults, the parents in the world, right? It's, it's really our responsibility to get our acts together, right? And when I talk about the personal decisions that we're making, you know, no one's born a racist, no one's born a narcissist. Um, these are decisions that we're making every day. So I'm, I'm really positive about this next generation, um, their ingenuity, the fact that they are digital natives, um, that they are coming up with ideas on how to work, make the world better. And it seems like they have a social bend in conscience. Thank you, Angela. And I'd be remiss, by the way, if I didn't mention the $5 million XPRIZE Rapid Reskilling Competition, which New Profit has launched in partnership with Walmart.org and Strata Education Network. And for listeners, by the way, early registration for that competition closes September 30th with a waived entry fee. Angela, if you could tell listeners, what is that competition about and what should competitors be trying to do? Yeah, so in Rapid Reskilling, we're, we're thinking about how do we connect people, workers, with the trainings and skills of the future? And how do we do it more rapidly, i.e. rapid reskilling, at lower costs? 
So when we say jobs of the future, we're thinking about jobs that are not estimated to be automated in the next three to five years that pay a living wage and actually have like rung up opportunities. And so when we're thinking about competitors, they should be thinking about, you know, rural areas, urban areas, blue states, red states. You know, how can we give people the skills they need using technology, you know, in 60 days or less that they will be eligible and ready to be placed in a job that, again, will give them a living wage. Thank you. And Karen, any closing words for our listeners? I want to encourage everybody to participate. Participate in your local politics. Uh, participate in, in electing people. Uh, go to your commission meetings. Go hold your local police accountable. We have so much uh, of a lever at the local level. And so much of workforce is also tied to local policy. Um, and I really want to encourage us that COVID teaches us who the real essential workers are, the people who work in grocery stores, the people who work picking food in the fields, the, the people who take care of elderly people and take care of, of people in hospitals. And we need to value the work that these people do, as well as those who take care of children. Um, and I, I hope that coming out of this, we have a, a restructuring of our value system to ensure that everybody has access to a good, solid, secure job that allows them to live a middle-class lifestyle. And I know we're the richest, most powerful country on earth. We can do that. We just have to prioritize that people are, are the priority. Indeed. I want to thank you both. Uh, thank you to my guest, Dr. Angela Jackson from New Profit. You can learn more about her work at newprofit.org or follow her on Twitter at angjack. And Karen Fleshman from Racy Conversations. Uh, you can follow her at racyconversations.com or Karen Fleshman on Instagram. Thank you both for joining today and for this provocative, timely, and vital conversation. I think we've learned a lot. I hope that our listeners take action because you're absolutely right. We are now 64 days away from the election as we record this. This is a pivotal election in our lifetimes in the United States and probably for the rest of the world. And I think what you're pointing to is the need to take action on a small and on a grand scale. And I appreciate the work that both of you are doing. Thank you very much and have a great day. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to get the next episode of the Future Positive Podcast. This podcast comes from XPRIZE, a global future positive movement of over 1 million people and rising, delivering radical breakthroughs for the benefit of humanity. Sign up to join us and support the movement that is making change in the world 10 times faster. Whether it's lending a hand, a dollar, or an idea, we all have a role to play in making the future a better place. The only way to get the future we want is to create it ourselves. XPRIZE, crazy ideas since 1994. Learn more at xprize.org. See you next week.